tonight, but we had some great songs. And, and that last song, what, Lead Me to the Cross. Well, hopefully that's exactly what happens today as we uh, return to the book of Galatians this morning. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me there to Galatians in the New Testament, chapter 2. And if you need a Bible today, just raise your hand. We'll, we've got some in the back, and we, we keep them back there just in case you got out without your Bible today. Might be a help to you. There's a little uh, insert, kind of a note page in your bulletin. If you wouldn't mind, grab that as well. Um, if you're a regular, you know the drill. I know you do. Well, history records that during the Civil War, many brutal acts of violence were committed by both armies, the North and the South. And one of these acts took place in October of 1862 in the town of Palmyra, Missouri. The town was under military occupation by the North at the time. And the commander of the battalion there in Palmyra ordered that 10 men be shot in reprisal for the actions of some southern sympathizers who had killed a northern agent that they had kidnapped. Several men from the Palmyra area were being held in the town jail as prisoners of war. They hadn't been a part of this killing, but they were in the jail, and so 10 of them were randomly selected to be executed for this killing. One of the number was a man by the name of William Humphrey, who was a father who had several children. When his wife learned that he had been selected, she went to the commander and she pleaded for the release of her husband for the sake of her children and because of her own poor health. She was afraid that she would not, if he was executed, she would not be able to care for them. Because of this, the commander had pity on her and removed Humphrey's name from the list and chose the name of another man by the name of Hiram Smith. He was a young man and he had no family. Smith accepted this turn of events, saying, perhaps it is better that an unattached man die than a man with a family. Well, the ten men were shot on October the 17th in what has come to be known today as the Palmyra Massacre. At the Mount Pleasant Church in Palmyra, there is a cemetery where Hiram Smith is buried And there's a memorial stone that has been erected over his grave by George Humphrey, the son of the reprieved man. This son was born two years after the execution of Hiram Smith. George became a school teacher as an adult, and as the story goes, he took his first full year of salary to purchase the memorial for Hiram Smith. You may or may not be able to read the words. Well, I guess you can read them quite well there. But here's what this monument reads. This monument is dedicated to the memory of Hiram Smith, the hero who sleeps beneath the sod here, who was shot at Palmyra October 17, 1862, as a substitute for William T. Humphrey, my father. Tribute by a man who would not have even existed if it had not been for someone dying in his father's place. I recall this story, and I cannot help but think of Jesus and what he has done for me. 
what he has done for you, what he has done for us as our substitute. Yes? Holy God, out of love for sinful you and sinful me, asks his sinless son to die in our place, to be our substitute, to pay the sin debt that that we could never pay so that we could have a personal relationship with the living God that would be real and meaningful now, but also would be real forever. That's the true gospel, isn't it? Jesus, who he is and what he has done, appropriated into my life by grace through faith. The true gospel. Jesus died for me so that I could be with him forever. This is Jesus' memorial marker, isn't it? It's not made out of stone, but this is his memorial marker. This and the empty tomb proving that Jesus had power over sin and death in the grave. These two together are the memorial to our Savior. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes his own memorial tribute to Jesus. He doesn't put it down in stone. He doesn't carve it into wood, but he sets it down on parchment in the letter to the Galatians, and specifically in verse 20, part of which uh, Kassan read for us a, a little bit ago. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. How does this tribute to Jesus read? Well, let's read it aloud together right off the screen. Would you do that with me? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. My substitute. Your substitute. Our substitute. Holy Spirit, come. Join us in this moment. Bring this passage to life for us today. Don't let it just remain words on a page. Let it be life for us. Let us live out the truths that you have for us here in Galatians chapter 2. And we all say amen and amen. So church family and friends who might be joining us today, verse 20 and its companion verses, verses 16 to 21, are in our sights this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse journey through this incredible letter of Galatians. And these six verses, as we noted last time, are really the heart, the soul, the central message of the entire book. These are this letter's anchor, if you will. Everything else in this letter will somehow tie in to these six verses. And so if we wish to understand the book of Galatians, then we really need to understand these verses. In fact, if we really want to understand salvation and how it works in our lives, we need to understand these verses. What it means to be truly Christian We need to understand these loaded, incredible, powerful, wonderful verses. Starting with verse 16. Here's how it reads in my Bible and in yours as well. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith, in Christ and not by works of the law, 
because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And we'll stop right there for just a moment. If you were with us last time, you know that we spent our entire morning in this one verse, right? Were you, were you here last week and a part of that time? Yeah. This really is the foundation upon which everything in our Christian lives rests. Justified through faith in Jesus. Or to say it another way, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It equals our salvation. Three times Paul says, says it here, justified. What does that word mean again? Well, it means pronounced not guilty and fully righteous in the courtroom of heaven by God himself. Justified, not guilty, fully righteous before God. We're justified through faith, the verse says, through trust in Jesus and his his saving death in our place upon the cross for our sin. Through faith in Jesus alone, nothing else added, we are justified, declared, not guilty, fully righteous. God, in response to your faith, my faith in the person and work of Jesus, in a spiritual, very real, legal transaction that takes place in heaven. He takes that sinless, perfect righteousness of Jesus and he applies that, he imputes that to my life, to your life, through our faith in Jesus. So that God, from the moment that he looks upon us, having put our faith in Jesus, he no longer sees our sin. He sees what? He sees Jesus' righteousness. Does that not blow you away? That blows me away that God looks at me today because of my faith in Jesus and He doesn't see any of my sin, past, present, or future. He sees only the righteousness of Jesus. Amen is right. I'm not trusting in any good things that I might do in order to try to earn God's love, earn His approval, His affection, His, my, my place in His heaven. I just put my faith in Jesus and what He's already done. That's verse 16. Three times, Paul writes, not by works of the law, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be what? Justified. Every other belief system in the world, you know this, every other belief system in the world says that we must obtain the approval or the acceptance of God by doing certain things and by avoiding other things. If we hope to really be loved, if we hope to be embraced, accepted, welcomed, wanted, saved by God, we must work it out, right? Work our way into heaven. Only biblical Christianity says, no, a thousand times no. Faith in what Jesus has already done saves and nothing else. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We don't even put it on the wall anymore, do we? Yeah. Paul wants to drive this truth deep into the hearts of the young Galatian Christians because, as we've already learned, false teachers have sought them out and are trying to add works and rule-keeping to salvation's story. The Judaizers... That's what we come to know them as. They're the false teachers. And, and, and they're, they're saying, 
Keep Jesus. That's good. But make sure that you also keep the Old Testament laws, the rules of Moses, because if you, if you don't do that, then you really aren't going to be saved. And Paul's response? We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Are you justified this morning? Are you? Do you know that you're justified this morning before a holy God? Is that an absolute, settled, certain fact in your life? Man, praise God if you know that is true, that when God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of Jesus over your life. If I ask that question this morning and you're not sure if you are justified before a holy God through faith in Jesus, then I would say today's the day. Today is the day. And we would love to help that to become true for you so that you would never again wonder Where do I stand with the God of the universe, the God who made me? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So Paul continues now, verses 17 and following, which will be new verses for us today. He says in verses 17 and 18, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not! Exclamation point. May it never be. Paul employs here in the strongest way that you can express a negative in the Greek language. He just puts it right out there. Certainly not. May it never be. Is Jesus a servant of sin? No way, we would say. Absolutely not. God forbid. For if I rebuild what I tore down, he says in verse 18, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, brother, sister, if you read these two verses and you're not sure what Paul is really getting at here, I can just tell you that you are not alone. You are in good company this morning. Even the best... <laughs> did somebody say, oh, good? <laughs> what a relief. Yeah, it's not just me. You know, even the best teachers around aren't super sure how to untangle some of the Greek words that Paul employs in these particular verses. Now, after my own study, I, I've just landed in a place of being most comfortable letting the Bible interpret itself. And there is a passage in Romans that might help us to understand these verses a little bit better. So what Paul is, is doing in verses 17 and 18, and, and I believe, and, and others believe as well, he's responding to these Judaizers. And the criticism that they are leveling against him is that, uh, Paul and his message of salvation apart from, from doing good deeds is destructive. That's what they're saying against him. Their argument might sound like this. Paul, if, if you are justified before God through faith in Jesus without any devotion to obeying the Old Testament rules, then, then you actually encourage people to break God's rules, to, to sin, in fact, to sin even more than they would otherwise. Your forgiveness through faith in Jesus and nothing, that teaching will lead to spiritual laziness and it'll lead to more disobedience. You literally make Jesus a servant of sin. That's the charge. 
That's what he's responding to. Grace and forgiveness through faith in Jesus alone leads to more sinning. You don't try hard. You don't, you don't have to think about that anymore. You just, just kind of do your thing. Oh, yeah, Jesus died for that. And then you just sin up a storm. And Paul says, no way. God forbid. Certainly not. May it never be. You think they struck a nerve with him? <laughs> well, Paul dealt with this very same false accusation in the book of Romans and in chapter 6. And I've included the, the verses there on your note page. In Romans, having talked for five chapters about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, Paul responds to his critics who want to earn their salvation by saying this. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And what is his next three words? By no means. It's the exact same Greek negative word that we have in Galatians. Exactly the same one. This is the very same super strong. No way. How can we who died to sin still live in it, he says. Shall we keep on sinning and sin even more so that the grace of God can be put to an on even greater display? That's, 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 his, that's what he's saying. And he says, certainly not. What a ludicrous suggestion. People who try to, to use the grace of God and the work of Jesus as an excuse to keep living in unrepentant sin are proving that they really just don't know Jesus yet. Right? That's the truth. In verse 11, Paul adds, just so there's no confusion on this point, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The last thing you want to do is sin more when you know Jesus. He's not your get-out-of-jail card every time you, you just want to go sin it up. Paul says, ridiculous. And so in verse 18, if you go back to Galatians, he in effect says, actually, if I went back to trying to earn my way into God's love and acceptance, if if I went back to that old rule-keeping way of legalism that you Judaizers are teaching and living, if I were to rebuild salvation by works after having torn down that lie, by means of the true gospel, Jesus plus nothing, then I would prove myself to be a colossal transgressor, a blatant, bold sinner, because I would be teaching that I could be justified before God by being a good rule keeper and not by faith in Jesus alone. That would be a great sin, he says. And I would never, ever do it. May it never be. Certainly not. And now that he's on a roll and feeling the flow, he says next in verse 19, as a matter of fact, through the law, I what? I died to the law so that I might live to God, might really live for God, not sin more against him. I died to the law so that I might live to God. And once again, we read that 
and we scratch our heads. We're not sure perhaps what, what, what are you really saying, Paul? And once again, it'll be a passage from Romans that will help us to understand this verse. So let me ask you to keep your finger tucked here in Galatians 2. And if you wouldn't mind, run back to the left a couple of books, get into the book of Romans and find chapter 7. Would you do that with me? I was talking to somebody between services and, and we were just observing the fact that really the book of Romans is the expanded version of the book of Galatians. It really is. Paul just amplifies everything that he says in Galatians. He just, boy, he explodes it in the book of Romans. So Romans chapter 7, that's where you are. When God in the Old Testament gave the law to his people, to the Jewish people through Moses, he gave the people the law for the purpose of showing them that there was sin in their lives. The law was designed by God not to be a means of a person's salvation, but rather to expose sin in a person's life and reveal how much they need a Savior. That's why God gave the law. Now, the Judaizers that Paul is contending with in Galatia have turned that thing upside down, believing that by keeping the rules, by doing the law, they essentially save themselves and they earn God's acceptance. They flip the purpose of the law completely on its head. And the only problem with this, the really big problem with this, is that nobody can perfectly keep the law, right? And we, can't, we, just, we simply cannot do that because we have a sin nature that we're born with, and that sin nature wants to rebel. It doesn't want to keep God's law. It wants to break God's laws. Impossible to keep the law. But it, the law is there to show us how much we need a Savior. And so here's what Paul says about this. Romans chapter 7, beginning of verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? That it's, 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 it's bad? It's wrong? By no means. There's that negative word again. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, living in me, residing in me, seizes an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, when I became aware of God's law, sin came alive in me and I died. The very commandment that promised life, if I could keep it, proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. We'll stop there. In other words, Paul is saying to the Galatians in verse 19, the law is dead to me as a means of salvation because all it has been able to do ever is show me how far short I fall of God's holiness. That's all it can do. It exposes my sin, but it cannot save me. It sentences me to hell. It does not make a way for me to get to God. Do you, do you see what he's saying? And if we jump back to the last verse of chapter 6 of Romans, verse 23, this is a verse most of us have memorized, many of us. This is what it says. Paul writes, For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, not the law, is the true, example, the, the true gospel, Paul says. The law is dead to me. 
I have died to it in terms of thinking that it can somehow deal with the sin in my life. It cannot. It's dead to me. Romans 7. Paul explains this more. Verse 1, chapter 7. Or you do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And then Paul gives this illustration. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, through faith in Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Here's another way to think of this. Let's let's, let's personalize this with another illustration. You're going to have to use your imagination a little bit here. Let's suppose that you commit a crime that deserves death. You've committed a capital offense according to the law. And the law convicts you and you are, are guilty and the law has the right to kill you for your crime. And so they place you in a gas chamber and, and they release the gas and, and then after the gas clears away and the coroner opens the door and unstraps you, in that moment, you come back to life. You rub your eyes and you exclaim, wow, it's good to be alive again. And you high-five the coroner and the coroner collapses unconscious. <laughs> And you walk out of there with the law no longer having a legal claim on your life. The law says you die for the crime and you died. The debt's been paid and you are now free. Romans 7 verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul's point is that as long as he lives, the law which exposes every sin in his life has a claim on him. The law exposes the sin and the sin brings death. Separation from God, hell. But if he dies to the law, sin's demands and the law's claim are fulfilled and canceled. And that is why, as we return to Galatians 2, he says what he says in verse 20. One of the most incredible, remarkable verses in the whole Bible. If you're tracking with his thought here, look what he says. I've died to the law so that I might live for Christ, for God. Then he says in verse 20, I have been what? Crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, church family, 
fellow Christian, this is absolutely incredible if we get our hearts around this. What the Holy Spirit is telling us through Paul's pen is that the death of sinless Jesus on the cross for our sins and His resurrection three days later from a tomb are not just historical events. Yes, He did give Himself up to death on a cross. And yes, He does live right now in resurrection glory. But what this verse says is that through our faith union with Jesus, not a works-based, rule-keeping efforts uh, to be good kind of a strategy, we actually personally, literally share in a spiritual way in this, this, this thing called the death of Jesus. It's mysterious, but it's real. We share in the death of Jesus through a faith union with Him. I have been, what is it again? Crucified with Christ. Paul's saying that when Jesus died that day on Calvary Hill, He, Paul, also died with Jesus. He was crucified with Christ. Paul says, I was there, spiritually there. My sin was there. I was there when Jesus took my sin upon himself. I was there when Jesus paid the penalty for my sin that I could never pay. Through my faith in Jesus, I am united to his death. I was there. It is faith in Jesus. Paul said it three times. Remember verse 16. Faith in Jesus that somehow supernaturally... And in a very real way to God, unites us to Jesus' cross. Brother, sister, fellow Christian, you were there that day on Calvary Hill. I was there that day on Calvary Hill when Jesus died. You can say, I can say, we can say that that that, that happened and we were there. Why can we say that? Because of our faith union with Jesus Christ. Not because of anything we've done. Not because of our goodness. But because of our faith in Jesus. I have been crucified with Jesus. He dies for us. And we die in Him. So sin and the law can no longer condemn us. They no longer have claim upon us. As Paul said in verse 19, I died to the law so that I might what? Live to God. Yeah. And through that same incredible faith union, mysterious and real, when Jesus rose from the dead that Sunday morning, Paul will say, I rose with him. On Easter morning, did you rise with Jesus? Did you? You think you did. Did you? All right, you did. You did. Because Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. When he rose from the dead, I rose with him. My life is in his resurrection life. What an incredible thing to consider. Something that we do not consider or soak in or glory in as much as we should. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me through my faith in him Paul writes the Colossian believers that little church family and he he says this to them 
To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. It is a mystery. This faith union is a mystery. We'll admit that. Which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. The hope of heaven. The hope of a future with God. Paul is saying it's not found in trying to work your way into God's good graces by devotion to rules. It's by being in Jesus by faith and by faith alone. And once we've been united to Jesus in his death and his resurrection through faith, our old life, that old life under the law, it's finished. It's done. It's dead. We died to that. Verse 18, I'm never going to rebuild what Jesus, what, what Jesus tore down by his death and resurrection. I am new. I'm dead to the law. I'm new. Are you new in Jesus? You're clothed in his righteousness. You're new in Jesus. It's a great verse. You probably know it. 2 Corinthians 5.17. What does it say? Can we say it together? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new has come. Do you believe that? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ by good works, by what? By faith alone. By faith alone. You know, in one sense, we, we live this new life through faith in Jesus. But in another sense, it's not we who live at all but Jesus who lives his life out of us. That's what Paul's saying. It's no longer I who live, but but Christ who lives in me. He lives his life out through me. You know, the real challenge of the Christian life is not me trying to make it happen. Is, Is the Christian life hard for you? Is it hard? Is it hard to live the Christian life? Sometimes we think it is. Sometimes it feels like it is, you know. And, and, and we fall into this place of thinking, boy, I just got to figure this out. I got to do the Christian life. I got to figure out what that means. I need to go to this seminar. I need to go to this conference. I need to, I need to do this and this and this and, and figure out how to do the Christian life. That, that's a trap, fellow Christian. It's a trap because that's not the real challenge of the Christian life, is it? The real challenge of the Christian life is getting out of Jesus' way so that he can live his life out through us, unhindered, right? That's the real challenge. The real challenge is, is just getting out of the way so that his presence can, can, can manifest itself. He's in me. He's in you. It's not like you and I have to work super hard to be Christians in order to glorify God. We just simply get out of Jesus' way. And he'll do just fine. Now, Paul's going to share more with us about how we do that, how we get out of the way in the latter part of the letter, in the second half of this letter. So we're going to get to that place. But at least let's understand that. Jesus lives out his plans and his purposes in, in us as we get out of his way, not as we try to figure out how to do it for him. This is why it's so absurd to Paul to think that anyone would use Jesus as a license to sin more. 
It just blows his mind that you'd even think about that because it's the very opposite of that. Having put all of our trust and all of our hope and all of our faith in him and not in ourselves, our desire is for him to be magnified, right? For his, for his, for, for him to be plainly seen in our lives, not hidden by more sin. And so would that our daily prayer, fellow Christian, our heart cry, our petition to, the God every, to God every day would be, Jesus, you're in me, live out of me for your glory. What a simple prayer, but what a loaded prayer. Paul then wraps this incredible, pivotal section up with a summary statement that takes everything that he's, he's been saying and compresses it down into one sentence. It's verse 21. Paul says, I do not, or better, I will not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, through dutiful rule-keeping and human self-effort to be good and, and avoid the bad, then Jesus died for what? No purpose. He died for nothing. If this is all about works, trying to earn your way into heaven, then Jesus died for nothing. The two central pillars of the Christian faith, the real biblical Christian faith, are the grace of God and the cross of Jesus. Those are the two central pillars of our faith this morning. The true gospel is bathed in God's grace, isn't it? His undeserved, unmerited love and kindness towards sinners. He didn't have to save a single sinner. He didn't have to save you, and he certainly didn't have to save me. But he wanted to because he loves us. He loves us so much he dies for us. He is moved to make a way for us to have a personal relationship with him in spite of who we are. And that way, of course, that, ac- that, that way of access into the grace of God is through the cross of Jesus. That's the only way. The faith that saves us is the faith that placed Jesus on that cross, that, that faith that we died with him that day. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Do you know these words? You want to say them with me? Let's do it together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Could it be any more plain? Salvation, forgiveness of sin, justification, not guilty, fully righteous in the courtroom of heaven. This has only ever been a grace gift from God to us through faith in Jesus. And it will remain so forever and ever. Amen. So anyone who insists on a works-based, performance-based, rule-keeping, law-trusting approach to God ignores the two central pillars of the Christian faith, grace and the cross. Such a person makes themselves the author of their salvation. And in doing that, they make the death of Jesus pointless. It wasn't necessary. I can save myself. Thank you very much. This is why Paul is so determined, church family, to to call out the Judaizers, first century Judaizers or, or 21st century Judaizers, to call them out, so determined to help these Galatians to once more lay hold of the true gospel of Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Is it any surprise then 
that Paul would end this letter to the Galatians with these words, which would would hopefully be our words this morning. Galatians 6.14, there on your note page and on the wall. May I never boast except in what? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May I never boast except in the cross of Jesus. Well, boasting in the cross of Jesus is what we will do now together as we gather around this table. We are going to boast about what Jesus has done for us, yes? Not for what, not about what we've done for him, but about what he has done for us. And we remember his death on the cross through the, the gift of the communion table together. So would you pray with me? And we'll move in that direction. And Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, as we come now to the table, this is a sacred moment. This is a, this is a precious moment to you. The things we're talking about, the things we're going to share in this moment, this is what it's all about for you. It's about honoring Jesus who paid our sin debt that we could never pay. And we, in this mystical faith union, have died with Jesus and risen with him. And this table lets us declare that to you, that we believe that with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So be our prayer. In this moment, prepare our hearts. Help us to to take this moment very seriously, to not play games with you, Lord. And then just boast in our hearts. Just boast about your cross. Boast about our life in you, your life living out of us. Let us boast in that. This is your time. We give you the gift of our remembrance in Jesus' great name. Amen.